Jesus, take the beauty from the pain. Jesus, lift these weary hands again. Turn the silence into songs of praise. Jesus, I am leaning on your name. Oh, I'm leaning on you. Brutally 
Them kind of words change the way I pray. No more God is good. God is great. I've been down before. I mean real low, but don't judge my past. We all friends, though. Forgiveness was the key. I was missing broke, but my God is big. Jericho. So I stand with my fist held high and my eyes gaze on almost high. Lord, pour out your love and your glory. I know you supporting me. You the authority. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. You have a plan for me. Hope in the future. You said it so candidly. So it's day after day goes by. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Happy Valentine's Day. If you want to stand with us, we are going to worship. And you 
If you notice, both sides of the stage have TVs, and they normally have lyrics, but we're having some malfunctions today. So if you open up your Bible app, you'll find the lyrics if you want to sing along with us. So I encourage you to do so if you want. And um, yeah, it's good to be with you guys. Let's jump into worship.
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men and women are without excuse. And Bill really tied that in. He tied in the ocean at the beach service and Yosemite and how God's creation reflects God and how we see God in creation. But in Romans, it keeps going and it says that men and women worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. And in my quick dip, I really thought about how we as a culture, we serve and worship created things. Constantly we do that. We worship, you know, TikTok or Facebook, or we worship a relationship or um, our identity. Are we successful or not? You know, we worship so many created things and we forget to, to look up and worship the creator and even this morning I was putting my efforts into something that was too much of a created thing by man and I just felt God nudging me like look up look up and serve the creator because I am where you find peace and I am where you find rest so that was my, my quick dip this week um and it was really, it was amazing. I sat in my little chair as, as, you know, Bill preached your little area that you get away. And I sat in my little chair and I, and I had this quick dip. And I hope that um, you all are having buoys or peer-to-peer -peer and, and able to really get in the word. Because I forget to do that. And when I do, I just get so blessed. Um, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for Todd, who's going to preach today. God, thank you first and foremost for your love, Lord, on this St. Valentine's Day because nothing on earth, nothing created is like the creator and is like love from the creator. And I ask that every person who is here today would sense your love today and would look up 
to receive your love. Be with Todd. Speak through him, God, that it's not about Todd, but it's about you, God, and that you would speak through him and use him just as an instrument to give us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning and welcome back. We're glad you're with us this morning. We have been in a, just a fantastic new kind of focus. And um, this really has been about, as we have talked about, the art of following Jesus. And we've been looking at these 12 practices. So we're working through kind of these these important aspects of the Christian life. And we've, we've just finished loving God through prayer, God's word, and worship. And now we're moving into a whole nother discipline of the art of following Jesus, which is enjoying people. And we're going to start with looking at the communion, the, the, the Eucharist, the the moment in Jesus' ministry, this intimate moment when Jesus offers bread and blood in representation of his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. What is that? How does that relate to this idea of building and enjoying community or enjoying people? We're going to look at that this morning. Let me start with a question. And the question is this. Think back in your childhood. And for some of us, our childhoods um, bring a lot of pain. And a lot of complexity and difficulty. Maybe a loss of a parent or a broken home. And I recognize that. But I want you to think back to your home growing up as I asked this question. What was the warmest room in your home? Not temperature-wise. If you Google that, you'll get all this stuff on thermostats. It's not about thermostats. We're talking about the emotionally warm place in your home. Many years ago, over 20 years ago, I was asked that question while taking a seminary class. And there were a group of seminarians and and our wives were included in this month-long training. And we talked about our identity in Christ, bringing together our emotional life with our spiritual life. And the question was asked by Dr. Neil Anderson, who was our, my, my professor and, and became a great friend. And he wrote a lot on the identity in Christ. And I answered the question by saying the den. The den was the warmest place. That was where my dad often would retreat to after dinner. And he had a three-decker organ. He played the organ. Nobody plays the organ. But my grandmother played the organ. And he loved the organ. And, uh, and so he'd go in there, and you can hear the organ playing. And, and he had a trumpet in there, too. And, and uh, 
And sometimes I'd be called into, I'd be summoned into the den, and we'd play duets on the trumpet, or we'd play backgammon or cribbage, and or we'd talk about, get kind of catch up, or he'd kind of find out what's going on at school. And I remember saying that was the warmest place. And in the last 20 years, I think I've shifted. I've decided that it wasn't the warmest place. It was a great place. It was an encouraging place. It was good to be there. But I often felt intimidated. But it was the table. And if you read the blurb this weekend, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I describe the table where we had our meals. And it was the place we connected. It was the place where we felt very encouraged. It was the place we were able to let down our guard. And it was the place we could dream dreams. And I remember the table as the place where we had our meals, but we also connected as a family. My two sisters, my brother, my mom and I, and my dad and I. And I believe that was a significant place in Jesus' ministry as well, where he did a lot of ministry, where he brought out the best in people. And I want us to rethink the table as really redefining the church at its best. There's a woman who wrote a book, um, We Will Feast. Her name is uh, Kendall Vanderslice. What a great name. Because she went on to earn an MLA in gastronomy. So here she is with this degree in gastronomy from Boston. And then she went on to do a master's degree in theology. What a combination. Theology and gastronomy. Well, guess what? She went out to study faith communities and churches that centered on worship in the context of community experiences around food, not in an auditorium, all over the country. And she came up with the conclusion that eating with others changes a person. Eating with others changes a person. Well, no kidding. I mean, could you imagine having two degrees, a gastronomy degree and a theology degree, her coming out and saying, there's no relation between food and God. Like, seriously. She had to come to that conclusion, right? I mean, that was her studies. And yet what she discovered in her writings and her um, discoveries around the, the country with different churches is that truly eating with others changes a person. And I think Jesus knew that well. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture this morning. It's the communion passage. It's the passage when Jesus invites his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal in Luke chapter 22. And then he does something very unique during this supper. He's, he offers the bread and the wine to represent his own life. In the center of this table is a meal that leads to a, to a representation of a sacrifice and then it moves to their mission, what their purpose is, all tied around a table. And I want us this morning just to rethink table and what a table represents. So it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, went on for a week. And it was now almost Passover. Passover is coming, which is a meal. And they were preparing for the Passover. 
And as Jesus describes these, Luke describes these events in the life of Christ, the first thing that happens is that Judas is identified as the betrayer and Satan enters into Judas and he's now preparing to betray Jesus, one of the 12. And yet in the context of this, Jesus says, tells his disciples to go into Jerusalem to find a place to have the meal together so that we may eat, it says in verse 8. In John, it's that we might have a supper. So they're going to have a meal together. And so they find this place, they gather, and they have their meal. And then Jesus, in the midst of this supper, a lot of things happen. But notice in verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you. And it says, before I suffer... For I say to you, I will never again eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is the last time. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom comes. And when he had taken some bread, he gave thanks. And he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which has been given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay? And in the same way, he took the cup. And, they, and after they had eaten, he said, this cup which is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood, which behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going to, as it has been determined. But woe to the man whom he has betrayed. And they began discussing among themselves one who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus just offered the bread and the wine representing the sacrifice that he is going to make on their behalf. And the discussion at the supper table enters into a discussion about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. I mean, it sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? All these things, a betrayer preparing for the supper, a supper. Jesus offers his most intimate moment with his disciples for them to remember this moment forever of what Jesus is about to do, and they enter into a discussion about who's going to be the greatest. Well, that discussion is had, and Jesus talks about becoming a servant, and then he mentions that Simon Peter, you're going to betray me. And Simon's like, he's not, no, Lord, I would never betray you. You will, Simon. But when you return and you come back to me, I want you then to strengthen the brethren. And then it says in verse 35 and continuing, remember when I told you and I sent you out to Israel, all throughout Palestine, all throughout Israel, to, to, to bring the kingdom of God, to bring the good news. Remember that? Well, I'm going to do that again. I want you to go. And so in the context at a table during a meal, Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice and then sends him out in a mission. And I want to put those three things together at the table. A meal, a sacrifice, and a mission. And I, was, I want to suggest to us as the church that we reframe our idea of the church 
from an auditorium, which, which it is, because we do gather together to worship, to hear God's word, to connect with one another, and we sit in this arrangement. It's not around a table. And yet what we know about our ancestors, what we know about the early church is that it was around a table. And for years and years and years, church was around a table. And I think we can recover some of that as the church today. As we dine with others, here's what we need to learn. First of all, it's a meal. And it's not just about the food, right? I mean, this is the week of unleavened bread, and they're about to celebrate the Passover, which is a meal. And in, during the Passover, there would be a loaf of bread. There would be a sacrificed lamb that they would eat that has been cooked. There would be herbs, and there would be four cups of wine for the blessings, for the prayers. And they would go through this process of retelling the story of Exodus. That was the whole point. Remember back, remember when our Hebrew brethren were in slavery, in bondage in Egypt, and God delivered us through Moses. And before we were delivered, God would bring his wrath. Because of rebellion and disobedience, the wrath of God would pour through Egypt. And it would touch people who disobeyed him, who turned their backs on God. But if you take a sacrificed lamb and you put the blood over the doorpost of your home, as the wrath runs through the nation, you will be saved. You will be spared. And then you will be delivered. And Moses will lead you through into the desert and into the promised land. And they told that story. Going back to Exodus chapter 6, that God finally heard the groanings of the people and said, I will redeem you. I will bring you out of bondage. And during this time, Jesus is telling, retelling that story. But something happens. During this meal, Jesus births a movement. It's the Passover. It's a meal. He broke bread. And often he broke bread with his disciples. We know that. Vanderslice, in her book, says, and I think it's possibly overstated, she says that Jesus did more ministry around, around, around a meal than any other time. And I thought, you know, is that really true? And then I began thinking through in the Gospels. If you really think through in the Gospels, how many times was Jesus around a meal, doing something with others, ministry, encouraging. John chapter 2, he's at a wedding in Galilee around food and wine. In John chapter 4, he's at a well. A woman preparing for a meal needs water. Matthew chapter 9, he meets Matthew, and then Matthew invites him to dine with Matthew's friends, sinners and tax collectors. Luke chapter 7, Remember the two miracles of fish and loaves of the multitudes. Peter's home, Peter's mother-in-law serves is, is healed and then serves a meal to Jesus. During the grain fields, the, Jesus pulls from the grain. Um, Zacchaeus invites Jesus into his home. 
here in the upper room, the Passover meal. Then later in John chapter 21, after Jesus is resurrected, the disciples are fishing. Jesus goes and rescues the disciples from their despair and says, come, John 21, 12, come have breakfast. He commands them, come have breakfast. Let's have breakfast together. And then on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Lord meets the disciples and they end up in a house, in a home, and they have a meal together. And that's where Thomas sees Jesus and sees the, the scars on his hands and touches them and says, behold, this is the Lord, this is my God, my Savior. I mean, all these things happen around a table. It, what does a table do? A table is about food. It's one of our primal needs to eat. And yet at the table, it brings people together in a way like none, none, none other. It, it, unguard, it, it, it drops people's guards. It's a place to meet, to talk, to be unguarded, to sort things out, to feel connected. In fact, everything starts in a garden around a table in Genesis. Everything good was about a table and food and connection with one another, right? And everything went bad around a table. The first original sin was over food. And so Jesus is, he's recapturing the value of the original intent of God. And that is that we would multiply and cultivate and grow and enjoy the fruit of our labor together enjoy something happens around a table but also the hardest things also ha happen around a table one particular pastor says this there is a common sense that something holy something transformational something grace-filled happens at a table as a result the eucharist may indeed provide a way forward for the divided suspicious world to find its way to a different place, an alternative, holy vision of what it means to be in community. It's disarming. In Acts chapter 2, the church multiplied around tables. One of the very first frescoes of the early church, a picture of the early church, was found in a catacomb in Rome, and it was a picture of the church having a meal together around a table. I wonder what that would look like. Tertullian in the 200s AD, a church writer, said that it brought together aristocrats and slaves in genuine care for one another during a time of the empire in which people were separated by classes and by their ability to eat based upon their wealth. So the wealthier class had the better food, the better wine, meats, and, the, and the, the lower class didn't enjoy those kinds of meals on a regular basis. And there was a separation. We see this even in Jesus' ministry. And during this Last Supper, a woman named Mary actually shows up and is uninvited and comes into the meal and starts anointing Jesus' feet. And Jesus doesn't push her out the door. He's turned the whole thing upside down and Tertullian's onto it and says that now this one place we see an undivided community of people. 
And the creator, God, carefully crafts us with two primary needs, to draw nutrition and energy from food in order to sustain life and to find companionship in sharing life with one another. In fact, this is probably the one thing during the pandemic that has caused the most isolation for people. We no longer can hang together in homes, in large groups, in gatherings around a table right now. We're, we're, we're not, we find those little places, those little pods, and we do enjoy one another. And we're craving for that. We desire that, that discussion, that dialogue. And yet we have been missing that in this last year. And it's the very thing Jesus wants us to recover for the church, a table. And, and notice in the Luke 22 passage and in the other passages, several difficult things are going to happen. Jesus is identified. He, Judas is identified as the betrayer. He's going to leave. There's a woman that enters that's not welcome, and there's a discussion about that. The disciples want to know who's the greatest in the midst of Jesus' most intimate moment of offering himself, the disciples are asking about who's the greatest in the kingdom. So difficult things happen around the table, but they need to be worked out in community. And we can learn something about that. One writer says, for community to happen, chaos must happen. We got to go through chaos to get to better community. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, one of the few times we find Paul really upset. And the Apostle Paul's upset at his friend Peter because Peter is in Galatia and he's a Jew having dinner with the Gentiles. But as soon as the Jews arrive that have different eating laws, dietary laws, they're following the strict Jewish cultural laws, he pulls away from the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? You've missed the whole point of what God has done. He's creating a new community so that we can eat together from different backgrounds, respecting one another. That's number one. How do we recapture the table as a church? Think about it. How do you? How can we help bring about a greater sense of community around a table? The second thing I notice is the communion. And Jesus, in the midst of this dinner, as he's telling the Passover story, and he's holding the bread and he's breaking the bread. I mean, just get this. He's breaking the bread and he looks over and sees the lamb. And as he's breaking the bread, they know he's telling the story of Exodus. And then he turns the story of Exodus upon himself and says that story from bondage to freedom. I've heard your cries. Jesus says, I am that Passover lamb. I am the one who is going to deliver you from your debt, from your bondage. And I will deliver you out because I will be sacrificed on your behalf. In the midst of this dinner, 
Jesus offers himself and says, as you take the bread and the wine, remember this, I am the Passover lamb. First Peter, there's several passages, but I just want to refer you to a couple. First Peter chapter 1. Knowing this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. As Peter looks back, he recognizes and realizes Jesus, is what, Jesus really was the lamb, the unblemished lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf. Later, he will go on. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 and verse 24. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. How do you really understand this, this, this idea that Jesus is a sacrifice? We call it the atonement. The atonement literally means the work and life of Jesus that led him to a cross to die on our behalf so that we might become the new community of faith, entering into the family of God. As Jesus rescued the Hebrew people, the community, he brought them out, not as individuals, but as a collective group of people, a community. Jeremiah 31 says that what God is going to do is make us, make us a new community through his new covenant. This is, this is new community language. We are invited into a community, but it could only happen through a sacrifice. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 reminds us that he who was not of sin bore our sins on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul reminds us that he took upon himself our sins, paid the price, so that we may become the righteousness of God. How in the world do we get our, kind of our minds around that? How do we understand that? Well, I was thinking about that and there's a scene that uh, stands out to me. And it's a scene in Les Mis. If you remember it, um, Jean Valjean has been in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And he's, um, and also for several um, attempts to escape. And so his sentence was 19 years and he's finally released. But because he was a convicted felon, he cannot find refuge until he knocks on the door of Bishop Muriel's home. He's given a meal. He's given a place to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he steals the silver and leaves. He's later caught by the police. Muriel is brought back to Muriel. And Muriel's now presented with this problem. He's a thief. He's stolen his silver. And yet, what he does is profound. He presses him to take the silver candlesticks as well, as if he had forgotten them on his way out. 
the, the police accept his explanation and leave, and Muriel then turns to Valjean and says that his life has been spared for God and that he should use the money from the silver to make an honest man of himself. You're spared. You are forgiven are the words that Jean Valjean hears. He deserves a sentence for stealing the bishop's silver, but instead he receives a new life in which in that moment his life turns. This is the atonement. This is what you and I are going to do in a moment. Denise is going to come forward in just a few moments and we're going to we're going to partake of the elements and remember what Jesus has done for us, a debt that we cannot pay. Like John Vosgen, he walked free no longer with the shackles, no longer with the shame, no longer with the disgust. He has been set free to walk free from it. What's that remembrance look like? In this moment, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. This is important. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, we often think, well, we're going to do this and we're going to think back to this moment when Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, right? We're going to go back and think back to the gospel accounts that Jesus in a few days will go to the cross after this supper and be sacrificed on a cross for us. N.T. Wright, I think, brings some clarity to this and says, don't think of it in terms of looking at it from time in one way, but look at it in a different way. Memorial. Think of it more as actualized awareness. What does he mean by that? Actualized awareness. Memorial, not remembering, but bringing the past story and the divine action of the past into the present. See, it's going back and remembering what Christ did and bringing it now into your present life. Does that make sense? Such that the present audience becomes a part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. So in the remembrance, we bring it forward from the past into the present. And so now in this present moment, the, the sacrifice of Christ changes us because we remember it and we begin to think now in light of the sacrifice. Let me, let me, this may not be a great illustration, but I'm starting to think, how do I illustrate this? The idea of bringing something to the past into the present so it changes your present experience, changes the way you live. Well, I learned to scuba dive when I was in college over in San Francisco and uh, was certified and then graduated from college and came back to the South Bay and, and uh, uh, scuba dive, did a lot of scuba diving. And uh, one weekend I was invited to uh, scuba dive with my dad and his friends. And so we got on this big boat, um, this scarab, and it was a wonderful boat and we went all the way past Catalina to San Clemente. And we went scuba diving. I usually would partner buddy with my father, but in this case, I was with one of his friends, Dirk Eldridge. You might know Dirk Eldridge, who used to be part of our church, who moved to Colorado with his wife, Stacy. And, and um, his father was my buddy that day. And during our dive, about 60 feet deep, 
um, I lost track of where he was. And I, my goggles filled up, and uh, they kind of fogged up, so I had to take them off and, and, uh, and get them clear again. So I did that because I knew how to do that from my past training experience. But while I did that, I took my regular out of my mouth, and I lost it. It went behind my back. So it's now somewhere back here, and I, and I didn't know where it was, and I panicked. And in that moment, I looked up and realized I'm 60, 70 feet, and I've never practiced a free ascent dive. I am not going to do it now. So I looked over and saw Dirk Eldridge, and he was a long way away. I'm out of there. I'm running out of time, and I just sprinted. I swam as fast as I could directly for him. I got right in front of his face, which I should have given myself a little distance, and gave him the signal, I'm out of there. Well, he didn't see me because I'm right in his face, goggle to goggle. So I'm now completely out of there, and I need air. So I grab his regulator out of his mouth and put it in mine. You should have seen his eyes. I mean, I was this close. What are you doing? He realized the problem, and we began to surface to safety. The things that I actualized from the past impacted that moment and saved my life. The things that I didn't train for could have killed me. The point is, when we celebrate Jesus in this moment, when we gather together, we bring that past experience, that past moment of the crucifixion of Christ, his sacrifice for us into our present moment and ask the question, as God now is present with us in this moment, we ask the question, how is it going to change my life? How is it going to impact the way I treat people? How does it impact my attitude and my perspective? And I think through now actualizing how the sacrifice of Christ really does change things. Scott McKnight wrote a great book. It's a professor, a theologian, called The Community Called Atonement. And in it, he says young people today really want the atonement to work. The atonement really has to work. Because young people today, the, the, the old bumper sticker, uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven, it ain't working for them. It just does not make sense. That's not the way they want to live their lives. They want something more radical, some, something more life-changing. And so McKnight says the atonement better work, but it better work to change us, not just something we remember, but something that really does change us. It takes us back. You know, I've been texting with a dear friend of mine, a brother in the faith, that uh, encourages me, read this, read that. And so all week long we've been talking about the Lord's Supper and communion and all this. And, and David Jennings has been giving me some great ideas. And, and then he texted me these profound thoughts. And I went, that is it. He said, Todd, I think I'm beginning to realize that what our culture is trying to do by shame, Jesus did with love. Our culture is trying to shame us to do the right thing, say the right thing, be the right person, 
act the right way. No, don't do that. you got to do this. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We're so confused. We're like, what is the right thing? And if you do the wrong thing, you feel the sense of shame. And it's like shame trying to convert us to be more inclusive, to be more loving, to be more caring. And Jesus did it by the atonement through love. And he accepts us in love. And he accepts the community in love. He accepts our culture in love. We don't need to do it by shame. We do it through love. By coming and realizing and actualizing the atonement actually changes our lives to be more loving, to be the kind of people that invite others very different than ourselves to the table. It's the very place we need to be. Did you guys watch the Super Bowl? Did you see the commercial with Bruce Springsteen where he's in a Jeep. It's a Jeep commercial, but you don't think it's a Jeep commercial. You think it's a, church, a commercial for the church. I mean, right in the midst of American culture, God drops in a commercial and says, I'm still here. It's the chapel in Lebanon, Kansas, in the center of the United States, where Bruce Springsteen goes and says, if we're going to reunite the United States, it's going to be right here. No kidding. No kidding. It is. And there was all sorts of controversy from the left and on the right, and everybody's angry, and it's a Jeep commercial. It's about money, and Bruce isn't really, you know, reuniting anybody, or we don't, they don't deserve to be reunited with us, and all sorts of garbage out there. And yet right in the midst of it, it really is about a chapel because at the cha inside of a chapel is a table, and inside that ta that on that table is the Eucharist. And the Eucharist represents the atonement of Christ that re reconciles all people back to God. And that's where all people need to go, the left and the right, the rioters, the protesters, politicians, civilians, leaders, business people, families, moms, dads, kids, the rich and the poor, as, as Paul says, the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the free is invited. And we are invited to be part of that and to live that out. And the last thing is the mission. Because where Jesus ends this whole dialogue, this dinner, this conversation, after he works through all the difficulties the chaos of, of who's the greatest, what does it really mean to serve, and we got to talk through the real hard things of life. No question, guess what? That happens around a table with love, especially when Jesus is at the center of the table. And then he says, I want to send you out. You're going to go out. This is your job. This is the mission. You know, Israel didn't fail because they failed in faith. They failed because they failed the mission of God. The mission of God was for them to be a blessing to all the nations. It wasn't about just them. It was about them being a blessing to others. It was the mission. And the disciples would get it. They would get it. And so this morning, I want to reframe the church as a table where there is a meal. Offer meals. Invite others. Speak of your gratefulness of the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus. Being Jean Valjean, in debt, a sinner, 
a thief, forgiven in a moment, set free, and invite others to enjoy the beauty of biblical community, the church, all people, the new community on this earth in the kingdom of God that is to be launched for all. Let's pray. So, Father, as Denise comes out up and we take communion together and we worship together, I just want to pray a blessing, knowing the sensitivity of different beliefs, different backgrounds, and perspectives on this bread and this cup. What it represents, we all believe, is Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. We know that. Jesus said it. And we respect that and we honor that and we bless it. I pray for a blessing over these elements as we partake together to actualize again, bring into our present moment what Jesus did that it might really change the way we live our lives. So we do this in remembrance of you. So we're going to spend some time in reflection and on your chair, or you can raise your hand. Debbie can bring you one of these little, little cups and on the top of it, it has a wafer. I wish we could put a big table down the center and all stand around looking at the bread and remembering Jesus' body and looking at the wine or grape juice and remembering his blood. But you can, um, you can open it up if you want right now. And the little wafers on top and then the grape juice underneath. But I want you to think about, I want you to think back like Todd said, remember, remember when you really understood that Jesus died for you. Remember when you understood that he died for all your imperfections and for mine. Remember when he extended his hand of love and sacrifice on the cross. remember as a little girl knowing that I needed a savior and someone to die on the cross for my sins. But then as I got older in college, I, I understood that Jesus offered a life that no one else could offer. A life of purpose and hope and meaning and, and life to all the things that were dead inside. I, and I brought that meaning of what he did on the cross into my life 
as a young woman, just understanding what Jesus did on the cross for me. So just take a few moments to think about what Jesus offers on the cross. And I'm going to leave you in quiet and let Godwin play. And then we'll take um, the cup together when I come back up. Jesus, you are the lamb. We remember, God, what you did on the cross through your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me and my friends. We remember your body, God, that was crucified on the cross, and we remember your blood that was shed. God, we're so thankful, but we really do, like Todd said, we want to internalize the fact that you died for us, that you love us, and we want to offer that to the world around us. We want to live that. We want our heart to move and to be transformed because of what you did on the cross. We want our life to reflect, God, what you did on so we take the bread and the cup today together in remembrance of you this morning. In Jesus' name.
may we be a community that lives out what Jesus did on the cross for us. Take the bread of life, broken for all my sin, your body crucified to make me all again. I will recall.
Thank you. 
remind us of the riches of your love, the riches of your goodness. As we go out through the week, Lord, as we continue to practice this message of being followers of Jesus, Lord, I ask that you would come close to our hearts and remind us of the benefits of following Jesus. Remind us of your goodness and your love. We thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for this time together as one family. It's an honor and a privilege to be in your presence, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen, guys. Thanks for braving the wind and the elements. I guess it was just the wind, but... Um, I hope you guys have a wonderful day today. If you want some prayer, find one of us. Um, otherwise, we'll see you this week. Have a great Valentine's Day. Hi. Hi, Susan. Have a great Valentine's Day. We love you online. We hope you have a great day. See you next week.